Hey, hey, and welcome to episode 63. Sending good vibes your way for taking time out of your morning, day, or evening, as the case may be, to click on that little triangle pointing to the right to have a listen to this podcast that thrives on all things cinematic. Whether this is your first time tuning in or your 63rd, it's very much appreciated. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Another Labor Day weekend has come and gone, so by now most schools have hit the ground running in the quest to light the fires that fuel the minds of tomorrow. I do say that with the utmost respect for anybody who works in education. After all, I'm one of them. And to be candid, even though I've known my students for only a week and a half as of this recording, so far so good. This is my 23rd year, so it's reassuring to know once again that it keeps me happy and I'm not burnt out or fried to a chicken McNugget. And along with the start of fall semesters, the month of September brings with it two annual reminders. First, that the Halloween season is coming up fast, which officially begins for me the last week of September. Just because. Every October, I am drawn to all things pumpkin and fire pits and decorations and flannel shirts like Mariah Carey to a three-way mirror. And second, the season of summertime travel is in the rearview mirror. So, as swimming pools get closed up, lawnmowers are tuned up, and horror movie fans get keyed up, it seemed only logical to close up our collective summertime mindsets with a look back at two 80s comedies that tread in similar territory, family summer vacation getaways that get screwed up royally. So in this episode, we give one last huzzah to the summer months as we look at 1983's National Lampoon's Vacation, directed by Harold Ramis, and 1988's The Great Outdoors, directed by Howard Deutsch. But if going as far back as the 80s fills you with yawns and snores that culminate in one big despondent yelp of no! It's okay, relax, relax. Just find reassurance through this nugget of wisdom once uttered by actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So here's the breakdown for this episode. Spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both Vacation and The Great Outdoors. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each one. Then we'll wrap up with the poll results and a listener trivia segment. So join me as we rewind to the funky decade of the 80s, a time when Ronald Reagan was the U.S. president, wearing gym shorts over sweatpants was high fashion, people made tape mixes, not playlists, and the ubiquity of video stores that rented out movies from all generations was nothing short of a miracle for film buffs like myself. Once upon a time, there was a writer named John Hughes. He was working at a Chicago advertising agency when he began pestering the editors of the National Lampoon to give him some writing assignments. Then, during a blizzard in 1979, he was snowbound and used the time to write a short story called Vacation 58, about a family from Detroit, Michigan, taking a disastrous trip to Disneyland in 1958. He got out of the trunk of his car a Rand McNally Road Atlas, remember those things, and figured out different stops that the family could make along the way. Once it was published, Warner Brothers purchased the rights and invited Hughes to flesh his story out into a workable script. Given the somewhat raunchy nature of the comedy, and the prediction that the film would be R-rated, Disneyland was changed to the fictional Wally world. Enter comedian Chevy Chase. After making a big splash in the first season of Saturday Night Live as the anchor of Weekend Update and through his impersonation of President Gerald Ford, among others, he had left the show after one season to launch a film career. But, unfortunately, he did not become a major film star. He worked pretty steadily in the movies, but the quality of the material wasn't consistently great. Of the six films he made between leaving SNL in 1976 and 1982, only two of them, Foul Play and Caddyshack, made any kind of a dent in the box office. But taking on the leading role of Clark W. Griswold would change all of that. 
Also in the cast is Beverly D'Angelo as his faithful wife, Ellen. D'Angelo had starred in the 1979 film version of the Broadway musical Hair and in 1980's Coal Miner's Daughter, the biopic of Loretta Lynn that got Sissy Spacek the Oscar. D'Angelo is actually a pretty badass singer, which makes her loud and grating duet with Chevy Chase in the movie all the more chuckle-inducing. She'd go on to deliver a criminally underrated powerhouse dramatic performance in 1998's American History X as Edward Norton's character's mother. Also in the cast, well, the less said about Randy Quaid, the better, but I have nothing but praise and high regard for Imogene Coca, who played Aunt Edna. She wasn't sure about taking the role because she was worried she couldn't be mean enough. Chevy Chase actually called her, quote, one of the sweetest ladies in the world, end quote. Fortunately for all of us, we got to enjoy her portrayal of the awful Aunt Edna due to producer Maddie Simmons talking her into taking the role. And rounding out the cast is future John Hughes mainstay, Anthony Michael Hall, as the son Rusty, and Dana Barron as the daughter Audrey. Hall would go on to do Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and much more recently, 2021's slasher sequel, Halloween Kills, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. So the film, directed by the late Harold Ramis, opens with the Warner Brothers logo, and we're right away off to the races with the bouncy song Holiday Road, written, co-produced, and sung by Lindsay Buckingham, formerly of Fleetwood Mac. Now, interesting thing is that Hollywood Road was never a hit. It barely cracked the top 80 on the Billboard charts. I mean, compared to all the success Buckingham had with Fleetwood Mac, Holiday Road is pretty much a footnote in his career. But to be fair, the lyrics are pretty simplistic. I found out long ago, it's a long way down the Holiday Road. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, take a ride on a West Coast kick. Holiday Road, whoa, 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 whoa. And that's it. Those are the lyrics. Buckingham recalled, quote, Harold Ramis called me up and asked me if I would write a beginning and a second song to go over the credits. It's one of those things you almost want to say, I don't do that. It wasn't part of my discipline. I wasn't sure I could do it, but that was also freeing because he wanted me to try. Obviously, I knew it had to be somewhat uplifting and a little bit funny, which it is, but somehow we nailed it beyond Maddie Simmons' expectations, certainly. He was like, holy crap. A lot of that was just luck. End quote. The second song ended up being Dancing Across the USA. And on a personal note, I say that Holiday Road is friggin' lit. It's right there in my playlist where it belongs, and hopefully on yours too. The opening credits roll over a series of still images of tacky tourist postcards from all these different tacky tourist destinations across the U.S. Then there's an establishing shot of Chicago, as Clark Griswold and his son Rusty pull up in a very 80s station wagon into the parking lot of a car dealership. Through the glass window, we can see the salesman, Ed, played by Eugene Levy, talking and laughing with a colleague when he sees the Griswolds pull up and gets a panic-stricken look on his face. Clack and Rusty are there to trade in Ellen's old station wagon, and Clack's got on the butt-ugliest blue suit that I ever did enjoy. They're there to pick up the Antarctic Blue sports wagon, but get suckered by Ed into taking the Wagon Queen family truckster. Eugene Levy's appearance is really brief here, but he does get a few good chuckles the way he perpetuates the stereotype of slimy used car salesmen screwing up their names, calling them Reuben and Clyde. He has the car there traded in, crushed and totaled, and instead of filing a lawsuit like a real red-blooded American would, Clack meekly brings himself and Rusty home in the new truckster, where a horrified Ellen and Audrey look at it in astonishment. Clack throws the same lines of bullshit at them that Ed threw at him, that they think they hate the car now, but wait till they drive it. This is their automobile. Rusty is just looking at him with weary resignation, like he's been through this kind of thing with his dad millions of times before. This is a kid who knows that his father is a grade-A sucker. He knows he means well, but he also knows he's got his head up his ass. 
As for Alan, she tries to get him to agree to fly out to California instead of driving cross-country. But he sentimentally says in a squeaky voice that the whole point of a family vacation is to spend time together as a family. You get on a plane and you put on your earphones and you're lost in your own world. He sees his kids two minutes in the morning, two minutes in the evening, maybe three hours on the weekend. She sees them all the time. And one day he'll realize that his babies are all grown up and then what? She says lovingly but conjolingly that she just thought it might be easier to fly. But he says nothing worthwhile is easy. He says something similar to Rusty and Audrey, that getting there is half the fun, much to their annoyance. Cut to the big morning. Vacation time. The Griswolds pile into the truckster, which is still inside the garage. Their neighbors and the neighborhood kids are all there to see the Griswolds off. And the way that they're all excitedly saying goodbye to each other is as corny as it gets. But then the payoff comes when they back out of the garage, knocking all of the luggage that was already tied to the roof, flying onto the ground in front of them. Not the most inspired or funniest gag ever, but it effectively sets up this whole movie as a satire of sappy, suburban, middle-class American life in the era of the yuppie. He's an overly eager father who wants to give his family the best possible summer vacation of their lives, trying to live out the American dream, and the kids are weary of his overbearing geekiness and inability to deliver on his lofty promises. He's unrelenting in his well-intentioned but unrealistic and stubborn attempts to be the perfect all-American dad. The head of the family, with kids he wants to see get all excited for what he's convinced that he can provide them with, because, after all, how could the dream fail him? But fail him it does, as disaster upon disaster strikes, comical problems and setbacks coming fast and furious that derail his family's enthusiasm at a steady pace. There's some physical comedy, but I'd say more witty and clever, not to mention on-target social commentary, more than anything else. The sequel that came two years later, National Lampoon's European Vacation, that one went much more in the direction of slapstick, which is either good or bad, depending on your personal preference. But the character of Clark Griswold and all that he represents about what the so-called family man of Reagan-era middle-class America was expected to strive for, in terms of financial comfort yielding nice cars, comfortable suburban homes, 20,000 pictures of his kids all over the living room walls, take a look at the scene when he's showing his kids the triptych. I think there are probably 20 pictures of Audrey alone. The role of the father as the head of the family, and the mother as the supportive and sexy happy homemaker and a trip across the nation that includes visiting white trash relatives, seedy motels, wrong turns off the highway that lead to the middle of nowhere in the deserts of Arizona, and family-themed fun amusement packs, not to mention an out-of-the-way stop to see the world's largest ball of mud. The movie must have rung true for a lot of filmgoers in the early 80s who recognized the character flaws and unrealistic expectations within their own families. Seeing as how it was a big box office hit, spawned a franchise, and made the Griswold family name a ubiquitous part of pop culture. And from the entrance to Roy Wally World, to the mountainous woods of Wisconsin, let's pivot towards the 1988 comedy The Great Outdoors, written and executive produced by John Hughes and directed, as I said earlier, by Howard Deutsch, who had previously directed for Hughes on Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful. Deutsch would soar to career heights, directing one episode of TV's trashy nighttime soap opera Melrose Place, and a few forgettable features like Macaulay Culkin's final film Getting Even with Dad, and Grumpier Old Men, the sequel to Jack Lemmon's and Walter Matthau's original Grumpy Old Men. The two leads of The Great Outdoors, John Candy and Dan Aykroyd, previously worked together in Steven Spielberg's 1941 and John Landis's The Blues Brothers, but it wasn't until The Great Outdoors that they would share top billing, even though Aykroyd's name appears first in the opening credits. As this story unfolds, after the logo that says Universal, an MCA company, there's an audio fade-in of Yakety Yak by the Costas, and a visual one of an exterior shot of the mountains. 
But hang on a sec. We hear additional voices singing along with Billy Guy, Bobby Nunn, and the rest of the Coasts. Chet and Connie Ripley, played by John Candy and Stephanie Farrisee, and their two teenage sons, Buck, played by Chris Young, and Ben, played by Ian Michael Giatti, are driving along the mountain roads in a very 80s station wagon, complete with luggage tied up on the roof. Sound familiar? No sign of Aunt Edna, but there's other buffoonery afoot. They're lip-syncing and pantomiming the sax solo as they pull up to their destination, a vacation lodge called Perk's Pine Log Resort Lodge. Chet pulls right in between four trees like a fool, and there's a bird's-eye-view angle for us to enjoy as they all open their doors to vacate the vehicle, each door smashing into a conveniently located tree right next to it. An amusing sight gag, but not the most clever. Chet happily and sentimentally comments on the nature around them and brings the family into the main lodge to check in. But there's no one at the desk, and the two boys appear less than impressed, as Chet and Connie reminisce about being there for their honeymoon years ago. They call out hello to see if there's anyone in the back room, then Chet sees a horn attached to the wall, with a sign that says, For prompt service, blow me. Okay, I cannot deny that delivered a good solid laugh. He blows the horn, a vicious-looking dog with what looks like long pine needles sticking out of its face, leaps up from behind the counter, backing its tail off. And a scruffy-looking man named Wally, played by Robert Prosky, and his wife Juanita, played by Zoanne Leroy, appear behind the counter, Wally telling the dog to shut the frig up. Buck, the oldest son, asks, what happened to that dog's face? And Wally says, porcupine quills. Loves porcupines, hates people. She's in heat, too. Too bad you're not a dog. Okay, speaking only for myself, I'd be flattered. Cut to Wally lying on his back on the hood of a car being driven by Ripley, believe it or not. Thank you. So the family is totally cool with slowly driving through the property as Wally navigates. I'm sorry, but I'd be there like, just give me a friggin' map and get your grubby ass off my very 80s station wagon hood. They pull up to their cabin. Wally slides off the hood onto the ground in an upright position. Juanita and the porcupine needle-laden pooch get out of the passenger side, and Connie and the boys get out of the back seat. What the hell the dog needs to be there for, I couldn't tell you. But Wally's wearing a t-shirt that you see clearly for the first time. It says, I've been to Duluth, which is a nice, wry and sarcastic little touch of characterization. Wally and Juanita tell them to enjoy their stay. Chet replies, how could you not in a place like this? To which Wally says, under his breath, as he and Juanita walk away, you could get the shits from the well water. Cut two shots of a rather fancy, very 80s Mercedes, of the sleek persuasion, and the license plate Roman 1, as in the number 1. The car pulls into the same parking lot, and out steps Roman Craig, played by Dan Aykroyd, his wife Kate, played by Annette Benning in her feature film debut, and their twin daughters, Cara and Mara, played by Hillary and Rebecca Gordon. Okay, I don't know if this is a case of seeing something that maybe is not there, but throughout this whole movie, it seems like the majority of the close-ups went to just one of these girls, and the other one we see only in profile. Then again, maybe they took turns with their close-ups, and I just couldn't tell the difference. I don't know. But back to Dan Aykroyd and his character Roman. To put it bluntly, Roman is a pompous ass, and Kate's not much better, dutifully laughing at his jokes and applauding his every suggestion, including the right way to twist newspapers to light a fire in the fireplace. But here, when we first meet them, she's protesting that they're there at the lodge. He's going on about how this is going to be such a great surprise for Chet and his family, for Roman and company to show up to join them uninvited. So they're getting out of the car, and Kate's going on about how this is unfair to Chet and Connie, showing up unannounced like this. But Roman's saying, oh, come on, they'll be tickled pink. They've vacationed together before. Okay, and here's where I have to hit the pause button and grimace at this awkward plot exposition. 
I mean, she says nothing in protest until Roman gushes about what a great surprise this is for Chet. Did they not have this conversation before they even began packing? She didn't bring up her disagreement with her husband's plan until after they packed up their daughters, drove God knows how many hours into the sticks, pulled up to the lodge, and got out of the car. I mean, it fills us in on the plot setup, but it's like those sitcoms, you know, when characters walk through the front door at the beginning of a scene, having been somewhere together in the previous scene, and have a dialogue exchange like, I can't believe you said that, or wow, that was worse than third period French class, or some hokey joke like that. Like, those sitcom characters didn't have this conversation on their way back home, not until they walked through the front door. But, like I said, Romans and Kate's back and forth brings the viewer up to speed, so mission accomplished as far as setting up the premise. Roman proceeds to make an obnoxious, insulting pig of himself. Chet grimaces, winces, looks away in aggravation, and tolerates the bullshit for as long as humanly possible. It's a variation of the dynamic between Clack Griswold and Cousin Eddie, only instead of slovenly, boorish, lazy, beer-swelling Eddie, it's money-driven, self-absorbed, competitive, and arrogant yuppie Roman. A lot of the great outdoors does dip into the same well as National Lampoon's vacation, from the thankless role of the supportive wife to the jaded teenage kids who roll their eyes every time dear old dad gets sentimental, talking about his memories of being in the great outdoors with his own father and how he wants his own two boys to have the same memories. One scene that was probably deemed great physical comedy at the time has John Candy on water skis and unwillingly careening around the lake out of control. One year after The Great Outdoors, Chevy Chase repeated pretty much the same joke, the same stunt, only on a sled flying down a mountain in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So it is fair to point out that The Great Outdoors did it first, but it's also fair to point out that when it came to movies written for comedians who started out in sketch comedy on TV, John Hughes milked the cow dry. I always say there are two kinds of movies, those you can fold laundry by and those you can't. The Great Outdoors is one of those that's the former. It's a nearly plotless series of joke setups and punchlines, and the payoff in each scenario isn't really all that funny, despite the briefly amusing first five or ten minutes. But even though it's not a feather in the cap of either Candy or Ackroyd in terms of highlights in their respective filmographies, if you like to have something playing in the background while you're focusing on something else, then The Great Outdoors is mindless entertainment enough. I do have to say that I think that Ackroyd is better as a doofus, like he is in Ghostbusters, than he is as a stuffed shirt like here, though his hilarious spoof of Detective Joe Friday in 1980's Dragnet is an exception. And John Candy was, in my mind anyway, an extremely likable comedian, who had a lot of great comedic roles, particularly as Tom Hanks' brother in Splash, Baff the Mog and Mel Brooks' Spaceballs, and of course the titular Uncle Buck in the comedy of the same name. I want to go on record as saying that even though The Great Outdoors is nowhere near the same caliber as these other films of his, John Candy is just as likable here as he ever was. It's just unfortunate that John Hughes' writing failed to deliver. It's not egregiously bad, but it's not what I would call good either. It's there. But director Howard Deutsch and Dan Aykroyd both apparently have enough faith in the material to talk seriously about a sequel. In November of 2021, when Aykroyd was promoting Ghostbusters Afterlife... He told The Hollywood Reporter, quote, Howie Deutsch was a really funny director on the picture. He loved handling Candy and me. Howie and I are working on the sequel called The Great Outlaws. I am looking for the Candy figure. There are some really interesting names, but I can't say who. Howie and I are tickled to bring back Roman as a Ponzi scheme guy who victimizes a federal agent. Who knows if I find the right partner? End quote. What say we hop into the Griswold family truckster, dump Aunt Edna off at the closest front door, and move into the behind-the-scenes fun facts? 
So proceed with the knowledge that these fun facts will contain spoilers. So, spoiler alert, now. Okay, let's start with National Lampoon's Vacation. Number five. John Hughes wrote Vacation 58 from the point of view of the Griswold's son, Rusty. But signing on Chevy Chase to headline the movie meant switching the focus to his character. Not only that, but director Harold Ramis and Chase retooled the script considerably. Ramis would later say that Hughes was probably a little upset over having his material reworked. Ramis said, quote, I saw John quoted in an interview saying he was going to start directing his own movies because he was tired of seeing his scripts ruined by other directors. End quote. Number four. Originally, Christy Brinkley was not going to be Clark's fantasy girl, but Rusty's. The Hughes story and script originally had her cruising by in a Ferrari and flirting with Rusty. So, cuckoo kachoo, Mrs. Robinson. Kind of disturbing, but once Chevy Chase signed on to the film and the script evolved to be a siring vehicle for him, the focus shifted, as did her lusty gaze. Additionally, Brinkley was also supposed to strip naked at the motel swimming pool, but she refused. Ultimately, she wore a nylon bodysuit that gave the impression of being topless. Number three. During the gas station scene early in the movie, when Clark's trying to figure out just where in the hell the Wagon Queen truckster's gas cap is, he unintentionally rips off the license plate. It goes whizzing through the air and bounces off the roof of the car next to him, making the mother and young girl filling their tank jump out of their shoes. Turns out that was a blooper, and Chase's startled, concerned, and embarrassed reaction was genuine. The actresses playing the mother and daughter did not break character, probably because they were scared shitless, and it ended up in the final print of the film. Number two. Before the Griswolds even leave for their quest to see Marty Moose, Clack and Ellen are talking in the kitchen about flying to Wally World versus driving cross-country. The two of them are cleaning the dishes, but he never actually rinses them or puts them in the dishwasher. Instead, he just wipes them off with a rag and puts them back into the cabinets. Chase says it's one of his favorite bits in the film, but says it goes unnoticed by most fans. And number one. The original ending of the film did not have Clark holding the security guard at gunpoint and forcing him to bring them on all of the rides. Instead, Clark drove to Roy Wally's home, burst in, shot him in the leg, and then forced him to sing and dance at gunpoint. Clark is then taken away to jail. Director Harold Ramis did shoot the ending as it was written, but test audiences hated it. So the ending was rewritten, and John Candy was hired to play a security guard for reshoots. Enough time had passed, by the way, for Anthony Michael Hall to have shot up a few inches. Look closely at the Griswolds as they all put their hands up once the authorities nab them. He's taller than his on-screen mother, Beverly D'Angelo. But throughout the rest of the film, which had been shot months earlier, he's shorter. And speaking of reworked ideas and John Candy, let's leave Wally World behind and head up to the nature of Wisconsin in the great outdoors. Number five. The working title for the movie was Big Country, but the Tom Hanks movie Big was being produced around the same time, so there were concerns that the title Big Country was too similar and might confuse audiences. Because, you know, we're stupid. They settled on the title The Great Outdoors, but I'll be damned if there wasn't a movie release the very same year named Big Business with Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. But, you know, what's in a name? Number four. The bar-slash-restaurant that was on the resort property in the film was actually a real restaurant in Base Lake, California, called Ducey's Bar and Grill, shot as Ducey's Base Lake Lodge. Almost six months after production wrapped, Ducey's Bar and Grill burned to the ground from a fire that started in the kitchen. 
place was rebuilt three years later in 1991, and the owners paid tribute to the old burned-down building by decorating the new one with great outdoors posters and other memorabilia. Number three. The poster for the film was made to replicate the cover illustration of the British publication The Great Outdoors. On the poster, Chet's hanging from a fishing pole held by Roman. The tagline, Outdoor Fun for Everyone, is right there along with images of the talking raccoons in the movie. But for the posters promoted in the UK and other European regions, rather than Chet hanging from Roman's fishing rod, the bald-headed bear dangles Chet by the back of his neck while Roman is smiling smugly at him. Number two. Remember the scene when Chet takes the whole family to dinner at Paul Bunyan's cupboard and Roman pressures him into devouring the entire old 96er, that 96-ounce steak, so that everyone can eat for free? Paul Bunyan's cupboard was modeled after the popular North Wisconsin restaurant Paul Bunyan's Cook Shanty. But woe, alas, there is no old 96er on the real-life menu. And number one. The cabin where the Ripleys and Craigs stayed was built on the Universal backlot in the same location that was used for the Bob's Country Bunker set in the Blues Brothers. In addition to the reused set, the end credits of The Great Outdoors list the song Dragboat as performed by the Elwood Blues Review. Elwood Blues, as you may know, is Dan Aykroyd's character in the Blues Brothers. And now it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. The question for this episode, number 63, asked you what was the scariest part of the summer trips of the Ripleys and the Griswolds? The Griswold family truckster herself? Clark Griswold's meltdown in the car when he hollers that it's no longer a vacation, but a quest for fun that'll leave the family whistling zippity doo out of their assholes, and that is a direct quote. Chet's meal of a 96-ounce steak, or the bald-headed bear that had been haunting the lodge ever since his encounter with the beast years earlier. From the Facebook group Silver Screeners, 77% of the votes went to Clark Griswold going apeshit, and 22% to the bald-headed bear. Over on Twitter, it was 25% for the meltdown, 25% for the bald-headed bear, and the majority, 50 for the old 96er meal. Finally, on Instagram, a shout-out to McEwen Life, who went for the bear, saying, The bear, although you gave some solid options. Hey, thanks, McEwen Life, I try. Big thanks to everybody who voted. These polls are nothing more than silly fun meant to generate interest in each new episode, so thank you for making it happen. And keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, Instagram at FrankMandosa1974, or you can simply email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. In each episode, there's a different trivia question that's directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the people in them. You're all invited to submit your answers at any time. I do want to say that I like to err on the side of caution, so I don't announce both first and last names, just in case that would make anyone uncomfortable. So I only announce first name and last initial. But if you tell me you're cool with it, then full names it is. You get a shout-out, as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And, as I always say, do not worry about timing. It does not matter what question you're answering from what episode, however far back or however recent. Answer any trivia question at any time, and in the next episode... You'll get your meme and your shout-out. 
And hey, if you're a creator of anything from music to podcasts to websites to shaving cream sculptures to YouTube series, I'm always happy to give a no-strings-attached plug. People help people, and that's all there is to it. So last time, Seven Seas from the No On 15 Allcast joined me for a look at 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The question was, name the movie musical directed by Steven Spielberg that was a remake and got him an Oscar nod for Best Director and featured one of the stars of the original version. And the answer is West Side Story. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting is on its way to these fine folks. First, Judith A., a member of the Silver Screeners Facebook group, and a very appreciated listener. Thank you, Judith. We also have Seven Seas himself from the No on 15 Allcast. Be sure to check out his show, which is always a great listen. Last time I checked, he just began a series of episodes on 80s movies series that Generation X grew up with, and it's a blast. Raphael from the Geeky Dad podcast joins him in the Trivia Winner Circle. This is another cool podcast that has as his co-hosts his children, called the Multiverse Kids. It's really enjoyable stuff. And Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho, who, as I said before, knocks these trivia questions down like a bowling champ. Liz M. also once again cleans up, giving the correct answer, but saying at the same time, this is totally a guess. Well, Liz, you guessed well. Regular listener and movie buff Mary C. continues her impressive hot streak. Thanks for tuning in, Mary, as always. And last but not least is DJ Nick from the Gold Standard Podcast, who says West Side Story, a fantastic remake of the 1961 Best Picture winner. And he and his co-hosts, Rachel and Zan, should know. In each episode of their show, The Gold Standard, they make their way one at a time through each Best Picture winner in Oscar history in order. It's a great concept, and they have great discussions. I also want to tip my hat to him for his email salutation when he sent in his answer. My last name in all caps which is a brilliant Simpsons reference. Loved it. Thanks to everyone. You are all sincerely appreciated. I love listening to all your shows. And if you don't have one, I love that you keep this trivia segment alive and well. And hopefully you keep enjoying this show. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else kind enough to be listening, please don't hesitate to join in. Nothing to lose and a shout out and cool meme to gain. And go ahead and begin with this episode's question. I mean, what the hell? John Candy made a couple of travel-themed comedies in the 80s, including The Great Outdoors and Summer Rental. Name the one he did with Steve Martin in 1987. It's celebrating its 35th anniversary this year, and the title is made up of three modes of transportation. And it'll be the focus of an upcoming episode in roughly two months' time. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode or any episode that you've been listening to, Hit me up on my socials once again. That's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 63 to a close. As I say at the conclusion of every episode, thank you once again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please feel free to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to boost the show's visibility on these platforms, which only means that more people can discover it, which would make me happier than Clark Griswold getting the front seat on the Screamy Mimi at Wally World. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good autumn weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening.
and I leave you now with the soothing sounds of Chet Ripley's old 96 steak sizzling on the grill as the Griswolds pull right up in their family truckster to partake in the viewing of his barbecued delight. I'm <laughs> sorry.